You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This is an episode of On Principle, Challenges in Jewish Education. I'd like you to listen to an interesting uh, conversation that I had very recently with Rabbi David M. Cohen. Rabbi David M. Cohen is a rabbi, a therapist, a podcaster, and an author. He works with many couples, helping them strengthen their communication skills. He's the author of a book, We're Almost There, Living with Patience, Perseverance, and Purpose, which was published by Mosaica Press in 2016, which he believes presented a vision and a pathway for confronting life's challenges. He's also a lawyer. He's a graduate of the Columbia Law School. He has his own podcast, which is called the Jewish Philanthropy philanthropy podcast or jpp and uh he of course lectures uh across the u.s including many lectures that are available on torah anytime um he is a person that uh in his book uh, describes what it's like from being single and to get married uh how he raised a special child he shared his experiences um in his counseling and generally gives off a message about living an inspiring life in the world today. So I had the source to speak with Rabbi Cohen and I wanna present to you now the conversation that I had with him. Shalom, I'm talking with Rabbi David M. Cohen, who is in the the five towns, I guess, providers you have you've been a rov you're a you're a therapist you work with, with counseling so as much as you enjoy i know being part of the community you also have been a person who's given back in ways from your rabbinic training and specifically though today i want to talk more about if you don't mind uh the what you've done uh, and your people skills as as a rov and as a writer how you've used that in terms of the the counseling that you do, I know that there are there are couples counseling that you are involved in. I know that you have written, um, and again, you feel free to interrupt here and plug your your book whenever you want. But I know that you have had uh, ample chance to to be involved and actually done uh, have been very very successful. I would say from what I've heard, in terms of the effect that you've had in you being able to reach out and give from your wisdom, and many times just from your ability to listen and to and to reflect back towards others who are coming to you with their issues. So why don't you, you know, share some of that with us here today? Thank you. That was a mouthful. That really touches on a lot of different points. I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, always, guil- I'm always guilty of, of, <laughs> well, I, I of, of think... dumping large mouthfuls onto well, the people I'm interviewing in order for them I, to pick what they want out. Look, I, I definitely think that uh, I've had an interesting life experience. I find that, you know, my wife and I, uh, now that we're kind of free of a pulpit, we're kind of like, uh, we're, we're kind of uh, just, just pace up time. I left my most recent position. So I, I have a lot of more flexibility now. And it's nice. We're kind of trying to make friends in the broader community. We're inviting people to our home that we've never had before. And hopefully people will invite us back as, as well and, and building a social life. So I find that many people find my story interesting. And, and you, you referenced my, my initial book, we're almost there, living with patience, perseverance, and purpose, where I, it's kind of on some level autobiographical, and that I was able to kind of use some of my own stories 
that I've spoken about other podcasts in terms of my getting married relatively late in the firm community. I was 31 years old when I got married and the, the arduous process of finding a spouse. And then my first child was born with a disability with Down syndrome. And our son Yadidya plays a very prominent role uh, in our lives in the community. Uh, you know, we're not embarrassed by him at all. He's kind of a real personality here. He, people know him. He has his own shul. He's, he's kind of, even though I, I stepped away from my position at Artura, he still goes there. He's a active member. He plays an active role in the community. So in a sense that to the degree that I have an interesting life story that I was a lawyer, then I was a rabbi, lived in different places, married a European, like some people, I think they, they find my story engaging or intriguing or I tend to be a lot older than a lot of the people here in North Woodmere. So that's also maybe like somebody that people can, can maybe uh, look up to or learn from my mistakes. But the big thing I think is vulnerability. I, I'm not, I'm not uncomfortable using uh, my foibles or my shortcomings in my counseling and in my work with individuals to encourage, you know, I, I think my wife will tell you that I think one of the great qualities that I've been blessed with is resilience. I've definitely faced um, a multiplicity of challenges in my life, as, as many have. I'm not unique in that regard, but, but I definitely uh, am somebody who doesn't, uh, I don't give up easily and I keep plugging away and doesn't mean I don't get knocked down at times, doesn't mean I don't get discouraged at times, but, but I, I tend to always push forward, forge away, find a path. And that's really the message that I try to communicate to the people that I work with. And in addition, I, I have a decent ear. So I, you mentioned, I think it's an important quality Hashem blessed each of us with, with two ears and, and one mouth. And I'll talk about this idea that the ability to listen and to genuinely, I, I just, everybody learns differently. I tend to be kind of like this audible type listener. I tend to listen to a lot of content more than even reading. And uh, maybe it just helps me like really hone in on what people are saying to me. So all these different uh, experiences and some are maybe natural gifts help me try to help others. So how did you start your counseling career? That's a, that's a fascinating uh, discovery. So I think it, it dates back to my late 20s when I was struggling in Shiduchim. Uh, had a few relationships that didn't work out. Was trying to kind of understand myself a little bit better what I was, look, what I was looking for. And I, uh, a friend kind of suggested I, I speak to a therapist. And that process was very eye-opening for me. It was really the first time I dealt with this concept of, of, of vulnerability and that it's a strength to be vulnerable, not a weakness. And through my own kind of therapeutic experience, I kind of got very interested in helping others in a similar way. And I would like, I would devour uh, tons of books uh, of that ilk of that genre. And then any of them, any of them particularly you would say are some of your influences It was Rabbi Tversky, one of them, or was it or someone a little more, uh, classic in terms of like Viktor Frankl or anything like that? I mean, both and all. I mean, yes, I definitely read all of those, uh, all of the okay. above and others, probably more secular than, than religious authors. But I just found a lot of depth and a lot of things that resonated with me. And then ultimately, I was, in, I was, I was a rabbi in New Jersey for about five years when I was in Smicha with Rabbi Yudin and Fairlaw. And then I, was, I left, I pivoted to, to practice law for four years in corporate America and I pivoted from there and I got married in Israel and spent three years studying in Kolel in my initial years of marriage, preparing to enter the rabbinate again. And during that three-year period of learning in a Kolel, I actually was, was fortunate to have the opportunity to study for a master's degree in counseling. 
Neve Yerushalayim actually had a partnership with the University of North Texas at the time, and they have a clinic there. They still have to, to this day, Dr. Irving Levitz, who was my professor at Yeshiva University for rabbinics in terms of pastoral care. He wrote a number of books in terms of rabbinic counseling. So he was the initial founder of the Neve Yerushalayim clinic. And I was fortunate to do the master's program, the first cadre of master's students, males, uh, that was ever offered through that program through the University of Texas, University of North Texas. I have a degree for University of North Texas. I've never actually been at the university. It was kind of all online and on the campus in Jerusalem. And I was able to get the uh, shimush, as we'd say, or get supervision in the clinic there. So that was really my initial foray into the world of counseling. And then uh, we'll open this up more, but then I pivoted to the Upper West Side to, to a rabbinical position there. And you can only imagine somebody, you know, Hashem has an interesting sense of humor. Like here, here I am. I'm an individual who spent a decade finding my shidduch, had dated hundreds of young women, had a lot of ups and downs in that realm. And now the Rebbe Shalom could have sent me anywhere in the world to be a rub. He sends me to like the, the haven and the bastion of where single America, Jewish Orthodox single America hangs out. And he put me kind of right in the middle of that world. So there was certainly opportunity to, to write and to teach and to lecture and to focus and, and find myself also building my family and a young married couple and having children. And so many of these issues were fascinating and tantalizing for me to kind of explore and to share. So that's kind of like- the, So, so your, your clients or patients, most of them, uh, you would say you started seeing formally um, when you were in, in the rabbinic position in New York. And most of these people were young people that you counseled in terms of uh, their marriage choices and or their dating choices. Was that mostly what the conversations were about, or did they, you know, did they have to deal with perhaps phobias or or, or pains or traumas that they had gone through? Like, like, where would you say most of your, you know, most of your counseling was in, in which specific area? It's important to differentiate. I mean, there's, there's rabbinic counseling and then there's private counseling. And those are, in fact, two very distinct and different, different things. So I did a lot of, we'll say, hadracha, guidance, listening to congregants in my role as the rabbi with my therapeutic training and background. But that wasn't like private pay therapeutic interaction. In fact, you know, in that context, I often would refer out to others because you can't wear those two hats. You know, it's a different dynamic, different type of relationship. These are people that are going to have to see you on a weekly basis. Uh, in Shulan Shabbos, you know, they don't want you as their therapist. So that there was a lot of that. And in that realm, you're dealing with a whole array of different types of, of issues, different ages, different complexities. Uh, people don't always identify their phobias. You, you may be aware of the things that they're bringing in front of you. But then there was also on the side, uh, I definitely did have a uh, a number of private clients, never, never too many, because that was never my uh, full thrust. But I always have maybe three or four privately. It maybe was uh, could have been students that I worked with. I had the privilege of working at Yeshiva University, Stern College for Women, Lander College for Women. I was a professor and uh, guidance counselor in these different uh, realms as well, in addition to my rabbinical roles. So I'd have students who would graduate and would stay in touch and would come to me in a therapeutic context. And I, I kind of grew a real interest in, in, in working with couple dynamics because that was actually my, my concentration in my degree from North Texas was in couple dynamics. So I had a real interest in, 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 that, in that field, in that area. And that's something where I've spent a lot of time, I think in recent years, 
uh, since I left the Rabinet in Manhattan, I have spent a lot of time working particularly with couples, which is I find to be very rewarding, but very challenging. I'm sure it is. You know, it's something that, um, you know, Albert Einstein said that uh, marriage um, is, is a continued marriage, he felt, was uh, extending this, uh, you know, I, I don't think he used this word hormonally, but this induced mistake you have as a young person and then extending it for a ridiculous amount of time. You know, there's there there are many people, whether they're from the West Side or other places, that look at marriage as, hmm, why should we stay together? Why, especially when there's discord, what is it, what is it really about? We know that when we were young, from a sign, you know, people who look at things from a biological, scientific way say, you know, there were these there were these feelings and and and, and desires, but which are now no longer what's driving us. You know, why uh, stay together? And I think that there, there's a lot of skepticism about that. Obviously, if you come from a, a from Tyrodika uh, Hashkofa and you come from a house that is stable as well. You do want to emulate what you saw by your parents and you do want to, but I would assume on the West side or places where people were coming to Yiddishkeit fresh and had a certain skepticism, Einstein-like on the whole, uh, on, on the whole institution that you really had your work cut out for you trying to, 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 to justify, especially once there was marital discord on the table. So, you know, you, without getting specific, like what were some, what were some of the tools you use? Was it Tyra values? Was it, you know, was it certain theorists that you, you know, like, how would you make the case if somebody would say, look, you know, we were fighting and we were upset with each other, like, you know, convince us to stay together, you know, so what would I, you do, I, Rabbi? I'd love to share a few things on that. Uh, thank you for that thoughtful question. I think, look, it, it always caught me, I, w- I don't want to say by surprise, but of interest that both in my position in Manhattan at the Young Israel of the West Side, where I served for almost a decade as a Rav, and also in Ortora in North Windmere in the Ashkenaz Minion, where I served for the last four years until recently as Rav, I, I noticed that in both shuls, and neither one is a uh, you know, super large Zibor, uh, there were a number of couples in each that were on second marriages, like young couples that like one or both of the partners, more often one of the partners had already had a previous marriage. So that just in and of itself was kind of like interesting sociologically that I found myself kind of a priori dealing with people that were uh, on a second marriage. And there's a lot to say about second marriages, a lot, a lot to say. But, but to, more to your point, you were asking what, kind of how do you encourage people to stay together? I want to share a story that happened to me this morning that that is you know, I have to say this carefully, but there is something to what I'm about to say, I think. So I was in Starbucks and I met a, a lovely lady who was a, uh, a former client of mine. I want to be careful how I speak about this as well. Uh, you know, she and her husband uh, came to me and I actually discouraged them from seeing me because they were, they were, they were former Karangans or kind of Karangans and I really don't like to do that type of thing, but they really insisted that they wanted to see me. They were comfortable with me and they really weren't regulars in my shul. So I work with them. And it was clear to, I think all three of us, the two parties involved as well as uh, myself, that this, whatever, you know, the details were not important and, and, and they're confidential obviously, but to the degree that it was clear to all of us that like, it wasn't working, you know, the relationship wasn't working. And I ran into her this morning and she looked like amazing. She was so happy and, she was actually, uh, I don't want to give away too many details, so I'll just change the details a little bit, like she was with some of her children, and 
and she just looked great. And like, you know, and she was sharing with me like just how happy, how happy they both are and how they're both in other relationships now. And like, they're both thriving. And, you know, sometimes it kind of warms your heart in the sense that not everybody's, and not everybody was together is meant to stay together. So like, this might sound like uh, counterintuitive, but I've kind of, you know, I never tell somebody that they should stay together. You know, it's not my job. My job is to kind of understand, help them each clarify how they're feeling, where they're coming from, give them insights that maybe they don't yet possess or have, give them courage or strength to make decisions they need to make. But as I get older and more experienced with life, I understand, appreciate that not everybody who's married is meant to be married. And not everybody's meant to get married initially. There are people that never get married. And that's sad in terms of a loneliness component, but people are complex and not every combination is a combination and not every person is really equipped to be in a relationship with another person. And these are just realities. Now, again, these are exceptions and we certainly do try from a Torah perspective, we, we elevate marriage as a great value, but there's also a concept of divorce in the Torah, right? There's a mitzvah with garish in the, in the, in, when there's such a context where a relationship wow. is not working out or where it's harmful. So yeah, you know, it's, uh, so I think that's important. I think like, meaning not to come in with any preconceived notions of what the result needs to be. I think that maybe is probably the most helpful or maturation of mine in terms of dealing with people. Yeah, well, again, just I'm not pushing back. As, as we know, um, you know, I think it's one of the, I think I probably encountered this when I was a teenager, that the, um, the reason why we refer in uh, rabbinic literature to a divorce as a get, gimotet, is because those letters never appear together in all of Tanakh. You never have the letters Gimel and Tet next to each other. And therefore, that term is a term that indicates something out of Teva almost, right? That was the idea that when a get occurs, it's something stark. It's something that's not part of our natural mentality. Now, again, I'm not, I don't have blinders on. I realize uh, what has happened in the world. But really, I have been sort of, uh, in my age, I've actually been a witness to that. Uh, when I was growing up in the, you know, in the 60s and 70s, there were probably many couples that today would have definitely have gone their separate paths, but people who stayed together. Um, there was a feeling, you know, there was a stigma that was connected to divorce. And there was also, I guess, this mentality that, you know, even the Chazal are sometimes very open about uh, relationships of Amaroyim where it wasn't always Chad V'cholak, whether it was Yalta and Rav Nachman, whether it was Rav and his wife and others. So there was, I think, a, a sort of mentality of, you know, you hope to have the Zivug that was the best possible one that would give you the ultimate Simcha, but there was an idea of staying together, uh, whether it was for the children, uh, whether it was through the children, uh, there was always, and I think that started- well, I hear that. Started I, mean, the I, I hear that. I don't mean to interrupt, but I hear that. I mean, obviously, Chazal at the end of, Meseches, uh, you know, Gittin talks about the Mizbeach crying over, uh, you know, when relationships don't uh, don't retain it themselves. Certainly, it's a Torah value, and and I, maybe I, I gave a false portrayal in the sense that this was a unique circumstance where it was almost like reaffirming for me to see how much happier they were apart than together. And I don't think she was putting on a ruse or a guise, but I know too many situations where people get divorced for the wrong reasons. And they're not any happier. Uh, they're more miserable. It's terrible for their children. The ramifications are. So I, I do think, yes. I mean, I do think that it's a very, very big deal 
uh, to break apart a marriage, particularly when there are children involved, and therefore it needs to be done with a lot, a lot of, uh, it needs to be a, a last resort. So in, in the sense, to the degree that we can, uh, you know, a lot of relationships tend to fall apart because of societal norms, like you're referring to, and because of people basically being lazy or they don't want to put in the work or they're immature or they have unrealistic expectations, so on and so forth. So to the degree that we can educate and make people aware that what they're experiencing is normal. You know, it's, it's one of these things where like, most people don't tell you what's going on in their marriages. Like you're kind of in the dark. So like when you're going through a rough patch or you're going through a difficulty, like, so where do you, you know, everything else looks great elsewhere. I've had this experience so many times where like you see the, the model couple and then all of a sudden you hear they're divorced and it's like shattering because people like that couple is having, like you don't really know and you shouldn't really know what's going on in the intimacy of people's homes. So it's complicated and people are very alone out there and maybe to the degree that you can just give them some support and some validation that, that the marriage is hard, that people have different complexities, that things are not always kind of flowing, that we go through different stages and phases and, and there's ups and there's downs and there's external stresses and there's issues with children. So people sometimes just need to, they need, they need tools, they need Kalim, they need uh, guidance in terms of how to better communicate, how to listen to each other, how to be more empathic, how to kind of, these are tools that we weren't all raised with necessarily. People have to understand the dynamics of their childhood and how that plays into the dynamics that they bring to their relationships, so on and so forth. So in terms of keeping people together, yes, I think it's, it's education, it's, it's awareness, it's validation, it's uh, an array of things. But what I, I just meant to say that even though uh, from a Torah perspective, that is the paramount shalom and trying to keep uh, families together, uh, I don't think it's like an absolute at all costs. I think oh. and it's never my pl- and it's never my place to make that decision. And even if I think someone's making a mistake, it's still not my place to you know to tell them you know. What no, 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 it's, it was understood, Rabbi Cohen. I think I I, I, I didn't mean to uh, push back and you know and no no and, no, no. Yeah, I, I think it evolved in a debate. I think it just enhanced the discussion. I, I didn't take it as like yeah. A, one not- thing I, one thing you said before that that I think was quite important, and we you know I, I've been a relative in the shul, and of course you mentioned your rabbinical life. Um, is a rabbi knowing where he's out of his depth? I think that um, you know you mentioned that you realize first of all there's the uncomfortability and awkwardness of of someone who you're seeing every week as a congregant and then seeing weekly as a person who's spilling their 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 insides to you not just rabbi help me with this chicken or help me with the shiloh but you know i'm giving you my my, my whole essence of neshama that doesn't always work and and that's understandable but sometimes there are rabbis i think who didn't do who don't who don't do what you did uh who think that they are capable Maybe it's because they took a couple of courses and, you know, in Worthwhile or wherever it was, but they end up, I think, being a, a counselor in areas where they probably should be um, uh, sending their congregants somewhere else. Uh, do you ever find in your counseling that the, the, the people that you're counseling with are quoting their rabbi and telling you what their rabbi said, and then you end up being sort of in the middle and, and having this other influence, this rabbi who probably shouldn't have been talking in the first place. And now it's all, you know, this mixed up cholent of you, the people you're meeting with, and this rabbi that they're both, you know, being involved in. Um, has that ever happened to you? Yeah, I mean, it opens up a whole discussion about unhealthiness and unhealthiness vis-a-vis religion and kind of like when 
a rabbinic figure or a spiritual figure is giving bad advice uh, and how to deprogram people who come with those orientations. But I, my response to that is in the sense that my, my experience is the better trained the rabbi is in these issues and to the credit of Yeshiva University and others that have kind of done a better job in recent years in training their rabbonim the more likely that the rabbi refers because the rabbi does understand when he's out of his depth or out of his element. And I think, frankly, it's no different than there are halachic shilas that are above my pay grade. You know, I, I try to be a learned Jew, but I am not a master of Dalad Chalkir Shulchan Aruch with all the Nosei Kalim and the Bucky and everything. And there are times when I have to refer to a bigger rabbi to deal with certain shilas. So similarly, I don't see why a mental health issue was any different in the sense that there are people who devote their entire life to this area and have greater expertise, aside from the, you know, the, the logistical piece of it or the discomfort or just kind of like it doesn't make sense sometimes to be the, the therapist and the rabbi to yeah. a certain person. But besides from that, I think just at the core, I think it, it takes a certain level of anivus of, of, of just humbleness to appreciate kind of like where you are skill i'm very good with like you know i'm very good with like vanilla type clients like you know clients who come who need a little chizak who who are you know struggling with communication but like at the core they're they have a solid foundation like i've had i've dealt with many couples like this they'll read my they've read my articles in mishpacha magazine they'll reach out and particularly in in over the last year, many, many therapists now basically just work online and work via Zoom. So I have clients all over the country. And in that sense, like, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's easy to work and it's very accessible. But, you know, at the end of the day, like I always say to my wife, I'm very good with like, you know, vanilla, run of the mill, like, you know, I'm when, when people come to me and, I, and I'm happy, even when they come to me as a therapist, I'll refer like, I've had clients who have terrible childhood trauma. I'm like, it's about my pay grade and they need a trauma. They need a trauma specialist. And I've had clients who call me to thank me for referring them. I, I don't even, I'll just go on the Nefesh thing and I'll say like, give me recommendations. It's not like I even know, like I give the person a number of people they can reach out to. And I find that that's, uh, you know, you have to know your limitations. I think in life, it's just very important to know kind of like what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are. And, uh, and not, to, not to tread too far afield when it's not, uh, when it's not, a, yeah, I, I think rabbis, unfortunately, I was trained this way that rabbis can do a lot of damage when they uh, go well, to well, well, that. Well, that's a schus that you had, because I, I think that unlike, let's say, a halachic shayla, you know, a person knows what he doesn't know. A person knows if there's going to, there's a shayla, uh, an intense shayla in kashras, or even in ribis, that's not an area that they've really been involved in, and they can't just, you know, Google the answer. I, I think that Similarly, when it comes to uh, a medical situation where the disease is, is rare or the disease is something we know doctors know, you've got to go to a specialist. I think part of the people's skepticism about psychology and psychiatry in general makes laymen feel, oh, I can handle that. You know what I'm saying? I think because it isn't quantifiable like a chalik and shulchan or an area that they haven't learned or a, a disease they don't have enough shimushin, people sort of feel, yeah, well, I can. And I think that gives the rabbi, especially if there's someone who is, is, is charismatic and is, is very successful in other areas, 
you know, it gets to their head that, yeah, well, I have the Seichel of the Torah. You know, I know, you know, I'm, you know, I, I learned Musr Svarim and, and you can get everything from Mesilis Yisharim that you need. You know, you don't need, you know, you don't need these popular, you don't need, you, you mentioned before, you know, I tried to tease it out of you, you know, the people you had read, but you know, there are people out there that say you can get everything from, you know, from the Torah. And I, and I think that's probably why these rabbis fall into that trap. They're dealing with something which, I can handle this, you know, and, and I think that that's part of the reason why, and, and they're not trying to be malicious or just go on to a power trip, but they've convinced themselves and they believe that this is something they should do. They also, I think, feel, Rav David, that they owe it to their uh, congregant to, to, to not only listen, but to, to be the meshiv. you know, I think people feel, you know, I'm answering Shilas all day, okay, there's also listen, like you say, listening to Shilas. So they feel that's part of what they need to do is let me think about this and then I'll I'll give you an answer of I think what, what should be done. And I think they mean it with Shame Shamayim. And I think that's probably why, as you say, you have, I don't know if it's a plethora, but probably many situations where things have become overcomplicated because of the Rav. And I think that's, uh, again, I, I don't know if you agree with that justification, but I think it makes sense to me. I think the human psyche is at least as complex as the most intricate halachic shayla. And, and yeah, there is a certain complex of certain rabbanim who feel like, you know, it's, uh, it's the opposite of anivus. It's a gaiva, it's a haughtiness of like, they need to be everything to everybody and they don't know limits. And unfortunately, when, when, when there are no limits and there are no boundaries, so those are often when we find violations of, of uh, severe violations of rabbinical etiquette and protocol. So these are, these are dangerous areas. And, uh, I, I think it behooves probably Nefesh and other organizations like that to perhaps, you know, uh, to, to give out those type of calls. Uh, I, I think one of the things that we talk about COVID and it's almost impossible not to speak about it. But one of the things that I think became very strong at the beginning of COVID was how much we needed to rely on the medical expertise. You know, of course, you have Rabbi Glatt who's out there in the, in the five town area that, that was like the, the person who had at least some of the answers and that we needed. Um, there was almost like a godlike uh, deific, you know, of, of, of Dr. Fauci. Fauci, please give us, give us the chachma. But I think what it was good for was the knowledge of what we don't know, and that we need expertise, and that that without the experts, we're not sure. Maybe it, it turned us scared. It, it maybe paralyzed some people, but I think it was a good lesson of realizing the limits of what we don't know. And maybe people like yourself and others that are in um, the, the field uh, could perhaps once again remind people, remind rabbis and even good meaning friends that there are areas that you probably shouldn't start dispensing these type, this type of advice to and how, how dangerous it is. But it's, 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 a, it's an interesting point because if you, if you observe, and I observe this in my own experience, being a rabbi of a kahila during covid you see kind of like the tremendous pushback against authority and against people that are quote unquote, the experts. And you find even nowadays with vaccine and people that, you know, all conspiracy theories about vaccines, like you're never going to have like a monolithic view of any issue. And people always tend to push back against authority. And, uh, and it fits right into what you're suggesting that there are rabbis who kind of feel they can handle these things because it fits, it fits in with this kind of concept of like, autonomy like self-autonomy and i'm the end all and be all and 
these are complex issues. We're not going to resolve them right here in this discussion, but I'm just, I'm just mentioning them in that you're touching on, you're harping on a, an area that, that goes deep towards uh, different types of personality types where somebody can kind of have reverence or this is how I did, do you have a rub? Do you not have a rub? I mean, all these different things go to this issue of like, kind of like, how much deference do I have for a person who's greater than me? Or is there even such a thing uh, as somebody who's greater than me? <laughs> how do I, uh, yeah. so that you find different, you, I find that the, you know, there are a lot of really great Rabbanim out there in all different walks of life and worlds and healthy people and people who have, who, you know, attend conferences and, and are part of peer support groups and kind of, you know, handle these things the right ways. And, and then there's a, a minority of people out there that are, kind of like, uh, you know, do their own thing. But I think the majority of people do have some sense of professionalism and boundaries and what's appropriate and what's not. I'm not saying everybody does, obviously, but but I, I do think that thankfully more people than not, I, in my experience, do have, you know, a seichel hayashar and really want to just help and do the right thing and want to well, give the person the best care that they need. Well, look, you know, I appreciate you, you know, uh, you know I know this was somewhat of an uncomfortable uh discussion to have at least this the last couple of minutes but i appreciate you uh, uh responding uh to it because i do think it is important and we do want you know whatever listeners you know we want them to, to sort of think about this in the big way but i want to give you a chance uh as we wrap things up here Rab david to talk about uh your newest uh, book that you have that you're that you're working on why don't you just give us a little bit of a you know without spoiling us too much from what's going to be in there why don't you let us know what this new book is going to be about and hopefully uh it'll be a uh, as, as it'll it'll make the same type of impression your previous books have made and maybe even more go ahead thank, thank you so the working title of this new project is called we're, we're still here uh, and it's meant to be uh and it's a little bit of a fun, i happen to be a big sports fan so a number of years ago when tom brady the star quarterback now of the Tampa bay buccaneers when he was still with the patriots so you know everybody kind of like wrote them off and they like kind of had like a mantra like we're still here, like we're still here, like you can't get rid of us so fast. And I like that mantra in terms of, I think, bouncing back from the pandemic. I think thankfully now the world really is kind of like in many places post pandemic and the world is opening up again and we're going back that there's so many more dinners and social events and it just feels so good to begin to partake in, in these things uh, that we missed for so long. I'm a very social person and my job very much as a, of, a, of a fundraiser uh, where I help special needs kids is very much built on having forums and, and context to meet new people and to develop relationships. So it's, it's so great to be back. At the same time, I think it's important that we don't forget kind of the experiences that we went through, the losses that were suffered, the lessons that were learned, and this idea of writing a book centered around the theme of we're still here that speaks to a message of resilience of taking from the past into the future. So uh, I, I hope, and I'm really just starting now to work on the manuscript over the next few months, is to really kind of bring out uh, these messages in my style, which is to share kind of my own reflections, my own experiences with my own family, with my own friends, with my own teachers. So there'll be a whole array and mixture of, of those uh, anecdotes and personal experiences. Uh, we're going to hopefully have a section also that's going to deal with specific questions that deal with realms of things that we talked about in terms of counseling and guidance in particular areas uh, that come up in life as well. So it's, it's meant to be kind of like an inspirational uh, guide, but also like an intellectual guide 
to kind of, uh, you know, I hope it'll be ready uh, either very end of 2021, more likely beginning of 2022, as a as kind of like a, a, a primer and a, 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 a resource to kind of like remember where we're coming from, but to kind of hold, like, but to hold on, like we're still here, that we haven't been beaten down by all that we've gone through and the opportunity that awaits us moving forward with all that new knowledge and all that new expertise. So, you know, I can't give away too much because I don't have it all worked out yet. But I hope to, but I hope, you know, as we get closer, I hope to begin, I've already had some discussions with, with social media people in terms of promoting the book and, and hopefully a speaking tour and things of this nature. Oh, great. So, well, one of the things that I, that, that this podcast world that I know you're part of as well, but you know, as a, I've, I found myself thrown into in such an intense way is that I get responses from the, from the most incredible places, at least incredible in my mind where, you know, I have, um, you know, uh, a number of, uh, of, of Christian followers, uh, people from, you know, uh, there's people in Europe and Belgium and, and other places who, English is not even their first language, but they are, you know, absorbing this information and they're finding it interesting. People who are using it, um, uh, some of the other things uh, that we've done, and it, it's very gratifying. Uh, what I would ask you, just to end off here, is this book that you're obviously it's probably mostly for a Jewish population, but do you think it? Are you going to write it in a way like sometimes I do when I do my podcast, uh, with the knowledge that it could be once it's out there, it could go anywhere. And there's, there's people who are non-Jews uh, and, 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 and you know, who could maybe benefit from hearing this type of heart warming and important, uh, decent, important story as well. Right. I would say a thousand percent. One of the lessons I learned from my first book, which was published in 2016. So I've had a nice five year hiatus and gap between books uh, was that the first book I, I think wasn't written with that, with that enough in mind. And even though I had Professor Robbie George from Princeton University, who was one of like the prolific, predominant kind of conservative thinkers in America, Christian thinker, uh, who wrote the introduction to the book, and he was a, a mentor and teacher of mine at the Tikva Fund, but ultimately, I think it wasn't written uh, in an accessible enough language, too many references to things that to us are very familiar, but to others, maybe not as much. I didn't even have a glossary. So I'm very cognizant of that, this go around. And even in the initial draft, I, I worked very hard to kind of make it much more accessible. I've seen this experience. Uh, you know, you referenced my podcast, the JPP, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast, where we're almost up to our 10,000th download. Uh, so that's very exciting. And uh, the podcast is growing. And, and through that forum, I've met a whole bunch of different people. People always reach out to ask to be guests on the podcast, which is kind of fun. And I've taken some of those unsolicited, you know, people who, who, who met my fancy uh, but I've seen even guesting on podcasts like I'm doing here with you, Rabbi. So I've noticed that, you know, you, the reach that people have in the pot. I can tell you just, you know, the, the Meaningful People podcast, which is, I think, the top number one most popular Jewish podcast of the Jewish podcast genre of uh, Nachi Gordon and Yaakov Langer. I, I often give them a shout out because I was a guest on their podcast. And I literally get like one outreach a week just because people heard me on that podcast. So the, we're, we're all fortunate that we live in a time that even if we're not formally in a pulpit, but we all have this kind of virtual uh, pulpit and this reach that we all have just using the tools that are out there today, we really all have the ability to reach kind of multitudes of different walks of life, different factions, different religions, different cultures. And I think we do have to be more culturally sensitive in terms of our content that is being consumed by all different types of spiritual seekers. And there's a real opportunity there to make a Kiddush Hashem and to bring people closer to the truth. 
So that's a great opportunity. Right. And, 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 and of course. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 